If you want to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, that would be wonderful. Hopefully, by way of reminder this morning, I'd like to unite our hearts. And my desire is to take a running start in remembering where we've come from and how we've been able to come together here and be a room full of walking miracles. It's important to know and remember these things um, as we look at how to respond to the world and the times that we're in and the uncertain times that certainly we're heading toward. I think we're tempted to feel anxiety over the state of the world around us. Our hearts are saddened by the effects of sin all around. Certainly, we're exhausted by the battle of um, remaining sin in our own members. I think we're more and more inclined to cry out naturally, Lord Jesus, come quickly. However, because our God is sovereign and we know he is, and the fact that we're still here, he hasn't snatched us away, I think is a great indicator that we still have works to do. Actually, good works, right? That he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Uh, So my hope is to unite our hearts towards this end. So read with me Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure that I'm not alone in the immense amount of gratitude that I feel from these few words and the wonderful truth that is continually ministering to my heart. As we've just sung, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, and we, like Paul in Romans chapter seven, we see the remaining sin in our members and we do the things we don't wanna do and we don't do the things that we want to do. And when things are out of our control, the trials of life, and we're tempted to be anxious, these words, he who began a good work promises to complete it, They're so hopeful. They're so life-giving. So for our time this morning, um, I want to consider for a moment how the good work of our salvation has begun. And then I'd like to consider his promise to perfect it and some of the gifts that he's given as the means to this end. Sound good? Good. So clearly in this text, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he calls them saints, those who have been set apart from sin to God, and that they're in Christ Jesus. Ah, This is a glorious reference to the union with Christ. So how do or how did we become saints who are united with Christ? Well, Ephesians 1 talks about this. It says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Let's read some of this together. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Revelation speaks of the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. This is good. Revelation 13, 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, referring to Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Revelation 17, 8 says the same thing effectively. And I looked at 15 other passages that talk about the book of life, but I'll not take you to all of those this morning. But it occurred to me, I've met a few people that don't seem to like the idea that God chose people before time began. I've never heard any of those people be irritated with God's character for choosing Israel over all the other nations or destroying everyone on the planet with a flood except for eight people in an ark. No one seems to argue with God's words to Job for four chapters when he makes it absolutely clear that he's sovereign over all things. So we see the word makes it clear that God has always initiated our good work before time began. But then time began and man fell into sin. And we were all born dead spiritually from that time on with no hope on our own. And some of us, some of us have lived a lot of time in the flesh dead in our sins. But we read more specifically about that we were dead in our sins in Ephesians 2. So we'll read that together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and, in, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our uh, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God, I love these words, don't you? Being rich in mercy while we were yet sinners made us alive together with Christ. The issue was being born again or born of the Spirit. You, you remember Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? Uh, Nicodemus comes to him, says, teacher. He's asking questions. Jesus cuts straight to the chase and says, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must be born again. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which 
is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Forgive me, got a page out of order. This could be a nightmare. Okay, we fixed it. Good. Okay, and effectively, check this out. The Father has drawn each of us and given us as gifts to the Son, and we cannot be lost. Think of this in John 6, 37 through 40 and verse 44. Look at this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then think of Romans 8, 28 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. It's finished. It's done. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I think we're starting to get the picture of something here. We have been redeemed. Redeemed. We just sang about this. I love that song. Thank you. I love that song. We've been redeemed. And the greatest loss in the fall, they were walking with God and that fellowship was disrupted. The greatest loss of the fall has been redeemed. We have fellowship with God. We have the spirit of God indwelling us. We walk with God. So when Christ said, it is finished, it was a lot that was done. And we should be feeling pretty good right about now, okay? I've just taken you through a quick trip, a reminder. Hopefully we all can say, oh yeah, I know that. That's true, this is the best truth I know. It would be appropriate to maybe stop and just dance around a little bit. Anybody wanna, no? No dancing, okay. Think of this, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We are super conquerors. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Here's my thought. If he's done all that at the beginning of our salvation, then we, we might, perhaps we might, could believe that he'll perfect it. Yeah? We might just be able to. And just when you think that we're set, and surely we have everything we need, we don't need to add anything to that. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He saved us, we're sealed, everything's fine. In addition to that, he now said he began the work and he's given us other gifts as means to perfect the work. So, that's what I wanna look at. 
three gifts, three perfecting gifts today. Uh, trials, godly leaders, and the body of Christ. Perfecting gifts. So we'll look at the first one now, trials. And my mind goes to James 1 whenever I think of trials. Consider all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. I remember the first time I worked out with weights. I, I went with my friend. He thought it would be a good idea. I did not know that he was preparing for the Olympics or the Mr. Universe or something. Um, and he thought it would be such a great idea for me to just follow him around and do everything that he did. We went on a full uh, body circuit. He worked out every muscle group that I have and even some that I didn't know that I had. And I'll never forget the pain of that first night and then the next few days where I woke up and I was sure that I wouldn't be able to move again. And I must have been so weak that even my um, immune system was busted. And so I ended up, before it was over, kept, had strep throat. And I mean, I didn't move out of the bed for days. I was really sick. And I, I think the takeaway, obviously, obviously everyone can see this, is um, I was never going to work out again. <laughs> right? Makes sense. Fast forward a few years, I had a decent apartment and it had a really, a really nice workout facility, several things about it that were great and I didn't have any family so I had a lot of time on my hands and I ended up in that place a lot and I had new goals and I remember the first time that I worked out and I didn't have the time that I wanted, I was distracted and I had to leave and I remember the next day not even being the slightest bit sore and I remember thinking, oh, I wasted my time. I didn't even get a good workout in. And I remember feeling like that was frustrating. And as I look back on that, I think the difference of perspective, the difference of, um, of, of desire, my goals had changed. Now I wanted, I don't know what it was, maybe to be stronger or maybe to be, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing that for. But I had associated the pain of the trial with my goal of being stronger or in better health or whatever the point was. And I think that's interesting. When you think of um, James, consider all joy when trials come, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result that we be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Outside of Christ, I might have had a few goals, but inside of Christ, we really have one, don't we? We want to be like Christ, right? So the reason that we can consider it joy when trials come is because these are the very gifts, the tools that God is using to shape us more conform to his image. He's using these things. But I can never think of trials very long without thinking of Job. Now, I know a lot of you, and I know that in this room, we've endured some trials together. And some of you are enduring trials right now. And not in any way to make light of our trials, but I don't know, when I think about Job, I don't know many people who have endured that kind of a trial. And I think God's put that on display for several reasons, certainly to glorify himself. But as I think about Job, we, we got a little bit of a, a look into something that even Job didn't know about. You think about this moment. Uh, in the beginning of Job, God calls Job, uh, God calls Satan into his throne room. It's interesting. And he says, where have you been? I've just been roaming around doing my thing, messing with people. And God says, have you considered Job? He says, yeah, well, yeah, Job, but if you were to remove your hedge of protection from Job, he will curse you to your face. 
So God said, do what you will, just don't touch Job. So we know what happens to Job. Cataclysmic trials. Maybe the worst in human history, save Christ's. We think about this. Something's being put on display there, really, really beautiful. Obviously, God's sovereign over all things. He, we benefit greatly from this. I, I mentioned it earlier, but I'll say it again. Job did not curse God to his face. He worshiped him. And even though he started to question God, and I'm so glad he did, because then we get four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, of God saying something very important to us. I'm sovereign over everything. And he says it in a lot of creative ways. But we see something in Job that's put on display. The quality of the gift. It's faith. It's his faith. It didn't fail. And, and I think this is interesting. Consider it all joy when trials come, knowing the testing of your faith. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I hear testing, I think, oh, I don't like that. I don't want testing, right? But in this case, it's so very good when we think about this. What we see in Job is that even under extreme trials, his faith didn't fail. His faith didn't fail. Well, we've just, we've just read and we've uh, been encouraged this morning already to think through that faith is a gift of God. So it's something he's given us and he's already said he won't lose any one of us. So I think when we think about uh, James here, when it says, consider it all joy when trials come, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. What we see is that our faith is being proven to us through our trials. We fall down. We are weak. We can't do it on our own. We cry out to him because we believe in him. We believe that he's sovereign over all things. And then we see him. We see his hand again. Now think of David. David was a boy. It says the spirit of God came upon him. Remember? And that day, you remember, he goes out to the battlefield and he finds out about this giant, and he says, I'll, I'll go kill him. I like the idea of he was confident. I have a son in my house, Henry. He's a very confident young man. He'd say something like, I could take him, no doubt in my mind. I'm sure he would. And he has a lot of confidence, and that serves him well. But this was not a confidence in himself. David said, they, they go to David, no, you, you can't go fight him. He's a, he's a warrior, and you're just a kid. He's been a warrior since he was a kid. And wh what does he say? He says, no. I've seen the hand of the Lord with the bear and the lion. Now, I know some people in here have been close to a lion. Um, I don't think I would mess with a lion. I wouldn't want to be around one very closely. But David, as a kid, had apparently grabbed a lion by the beard and given it a death blow to the head. It's amazing. But he didn't say that in some arrogant way. He said, I've seen the hand of the Lord with the bear and with the lion. This is good. This is very good because what I've just spent time talking to us about this morning in our remembering of what the Lord has done for us. We've seen the hand of the Lord with the bear and the lion. The greatest bear and lion we'll ever see is that our greatest need has been met in the abundance of his own son. Our greatest need has been met. We're secure. When we stand before the next trial, maybe we're in one now and it feels like a Goliath of the trial, let us remember what the Lord has done. James 1, the goal is to be like Christ. And think of it, Christ 
in his moment, the, the night before his crucifixion, he's sweating drops of blood in the garden, remember? And he says something so very valuable to us. Father, if it be possible, take this cup of wrath away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? No one understands submitting to the sovereignty of God like Jesus, obviously. So we can consider it joy when trials come because it's perfecting our faith. It's causing us to be more like Jesus in trusting him come what may. Does that make sense? In October, my friend and yours, Tommy Lohman, um, Elder of the Year, preached out of um, Numbers chapter 20. You might remember, he said, he was talking about Moses uh, hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. That was a problem. But this wonderful message has nourished me on this very topic. And I've gone back to it multiple times. And perhaps you remember it, but if you, if you don't, if you weren't here or somehow you, you don't remember it, um, it was on 1024 of last year, 22. 1024, and it was called the sanctifying, uh, or sanctifying the Holiness of God. So, so good. So, so good. Definitely, if I hadn't said it already, let me say it again. Listen to this message again. It's so, so good. Some of the things that stand out to me are these. Tommy said, Moses had taken his eyes off of God. He was responding in emotion, not faith. And he had become distracted, forgetting all that he had seen God do. He says, we are like this too. Right? We've just talked. We've rejoiced. I think we almost danced over the fact that what God has done, taken us out of slavery, he's redeemed us. And yet we get into a trial, and it's hard to remember. <laughs> I love this. Tommy says, God places us in situations in life that we would prefer not to be in. It's fair. And I like this so much. God places people around us that we don't always enjoy or appreciate or understand. That God's using these moments and these people to shape us, he continued. This is important. Tommy says this, and it resonates in my heart. We are fearful people. We want to control outcomes because we are fearful, which betrays our lack of trust in God. This is flesh. It's flesh. Well, all of this, all of this is a loving gift. Based upon our knowledge of him beginning the good work, we should trust him with these things. But here's where we start to push back. Well, God, you, you probably don't understand. I don't like this particular situation. Um, I, I had other plans. God is at work, and he gives us the gift of trials and we can learn from them, and we can also apply what we've learned to the very next trial. He's committed to our perfection. So often the point of our trial, though, is our response to it. But knowing that God is sovereign changes everything. Well, here, here are a few thoughts uh, from 
from Tommy, and some of these might be his questions that he gave us for application. Uh, I think I've added something to it as well, but I think they're on here so you can look, but uh, check these out. Here's some thoughts. Apply these questions to our heart. How is God using the situation that I'm in right now to shape me and make me more like Jesus? Where am I fearful? And what relationships are being hurt over my responses that are rooted in control issues due to not trusting God? How would I or how could I have responded if I fully trusted the Lord? Well, God is so kind to love us like a father and and not let us find joy when we disobey him and go our own way. And oftentimes, if we're honest, what happens is we hit a trial. We don't like it, so we quit or leave or do whatever it takes to find um, an easier way out. But because of God's commitment to completing or perfecting this work, you often allow the trials to come back around, maybe with different faces or different names, um, but with the same opportunity for growth, right? But I think this is the issue. Seeing them as the gift from God that they are will help our attitude. Now, we, we should obey what it says. Be joyful, you know. Um, consider it all joy when trials come, knowing the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Who is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? Only one, Jesus. So this is why we could maybe consider it joy when these trials come. All right, well, let's move on. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 14 says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickier of men and by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So our second perfecting gift is godly leaders. We've seen perfecting gift of trials and the perfecting gift now of godly leaders. Well, we understand since the very beginning of the church, God has provided leaders to help us understand the word, to know what it says and what it means and how to apply it to our life. I wanna say this, the meaning of scripture is scripture. The meaning of scripture is scripture. He's always provided men that will rightly divide the word in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. I guess we could figure out what it's like to the day. It doesn't seem very popular. Thank God for these men, men that are committed to seeing us complete in Christ. These are gifts. I don't know how many years, several years ago, I ran across an article, and I don't know, it's, I always battle about whether or not to read things to you. It's maybe hard. I've got it connected with us here that we can all read together. But I found an article out of Desiring God, and it's called Workers um, for Your Joy. It's written by one of their men there. It says, Why Christ Gave Us Leaders. I'm going to read it to you, and you can read along with me. The reason is because it so perfectly articulates my heart 
in this moment. I want to share it specifically just the way that it is. So if you will endure that, just take a few minutes to read this together. Um, It says this. We live in a society that has become painfully skeptical about leadership. Some of it for good reason. Stories of use and abuse abound, and the letdowns make for big headlines. We all have felt the sting of being let down by some leader who we had placed our trust. The pain and confusion are real. The wounds can be deep. We learn to guard ourselves from future disappointment, and cynicism feels like a trustworthy shield. But the high-profile failures of famous leaders can mask the true source of our discontent with being led. Our love affair of self and autonomy. And coupled with it is a distorted sense of what leadership is. When leadership has become a symbol of status, achievement, and privilege, we're happy to be leaders ourselves and get our way. But we're reluctant to grant anyone else that place over us led by God through leaders. Into such confusion, the Christian faith speaks a different message. You need leadership. It's good for you. You were designed to be led. Yes, ultimately by God, through the God-man who wields all authority at the Father's right hand. But there is more. The risen Christ has appointed that there be human leaders on the ground in his church precious as the priesthood of all believers is, a remarkable truth that was radically countercultural from the first century until the Reformation. Today, we have a growing need to articulate afresh the nature and goodness of the leadership in the local church, a Christian vision of leadership. One of the ways Christ governs his church and blesses her is by giving her the gift of leaders. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. The mention of shepherds and teachers is of special significance because that includes the pastors of your local church. You never met one of Jesus' apostles, but chances are good that you know a pastor. Pastors are a gift from Christ to guide and keep his church today. Are they flawed? Yes. Sinful? Absolutely. Have some pastors made terrible mistakes, fleeced their flocks, and injured the very ones that they were commissioned to protect? Sadly, yes, too many have. But it's not because they were fulfilling the vision of what true Christian leadership is, but because they were falling short of it. In fact, their failures show, by contrast, what real leadership is in the the church should be. What real leadership in the church should be. Leaders are for your joy. The letter to the Hebrews gives this important glimpse into the dynamic of Christian leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, Hebrews 13, 17. Here's a beautiful marriage-like vision of the relationship between the church and her leaders. The leaders, for their part, labor for the advantage, the profit of the church. And the church, for her part, wants the leaders to work happily, not with groaning, because the pastor's joy in leading will be for the church's own benefit. The people want their leaders to labor with joy because they know their leaders are working for theirs. Leaders in the church, then, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, are workers for your joy. Christ give leaders to his people for their joy. That turns out or that turns the world's paradigm for leadership upside down for your advance and advantage. Paul saw himself as such a worker for joy in the lives of the Philippians 
He says, I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. He saw his leadership as the laboring for the church's progress and joy in the faith. How eager then must the people have been to submit to such a leader? It drastically changes the prospect of submitting to a leader when you know he isn't pursuing his own private good, but genuinely seeking what is best for you. What will you give your deepest and more, or or what will give you your deepest and more enduring joy? Not that we lord it over your faith, he says, but that we work with you for your joy. 2 Corinthians 1.24. Who wouldn't want to be a follower of a Christian leader if leaders were truly workers for your joy? You're skeptical of leaders in general. What if you knew those who are over you in the Lord were not in it to stroke their ego or garner private privilege or assert their will to control others, but actively were laying aside their rights and comforts to self-sacrificially take initiative and expend energy in working for your joy? And you who are leaders in the church or in the home or in the marketplace, what if those under your care were convinced, deeply convinced, that your place of authority was not self-aggrandizement or self-promotion, but that you were working for their joy. That your joy in leadership was not a selfish joy, but a satisfaction you were finding in the joy of those whom you lead. Well, this is the last section. Bear with me. No greater joy. Leaders taste the greatest joy when they truly look out for the interest of others, when they do everything in their power to bring about the thriving and flourishing of those in their care. They know the delight of the apostle who says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. They can say, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. When the under shepherds in the church show themselves to be workers for the true joy of their flock, they walk in the steps of the great shepherd, the great worker for your joy the one who tells us to pray that your joy may be full and speaks to us that my joy be in you and that your joy may be full. Christian leadership exists for the joy of the church. Such a vision changes everything, first for the pastors and then for their people. I like this article so much. It helps me see the leadership or see leadership in the right way. It's a gift. I hope the leadership here at CBC is easy to follow because of a true desire to be workers together with you for your joy. Practically here, we we see this. We have a pastor teacher who has been gifted to teach the word, obviously. And it says, the word is, as we've read here, the equipping, for our equipping. And that word equipping, I'll probably butcher this, but in the Greek, uh, the term is katartismos which refers to that which is fit or restored to its original condition or, get this, to be made complete. Because of his faithfulness, our pastors, week in, week out, he preaches the word. Not just one passage, he preaches the whole council of scripture. Last week was this vista, this beautiful vista that we we marveled, we went through all of these places in scripture. It was so wonderful. And because he does that, because God has put it in him to do that and gifted him to do that and given him to us as a gift, we understand the meaning of scripture. Year after year, we hear verse by verse and we understand more and we grow. And as a result, we become strong. 
we can stand firm against the trickery, the deceitfulness of, of false teachers. We, uh, we're like in First uh, John chapter 2, it talks about the young men who, as they're strong, we're strong, and we've overcome the evil one because we have the word abiding in us, right? Because of this, we're growing up into the mature measure of the man, the stature which is like Christ. Well, this is such a wonderful gift. Each of the elders here, too, are teaching at some capacity, and all are committed to um, care and encouragement of this body. We're here for your joy. I want to say this nicely, but I want it to kind of sound like do it. Uh, spend us. We're for you. Having leaders that know you and care for you and love you is a gift. But this requires of all of us. We have to be willing to be known. This means we have to spend the resource that God has given us. Recently, I I think I want to share this with you because it's it's an example of how to do this. A lot of you are already doing this probably better than me, so... Just take it for what it is. I called Tommy, and I said, I need you. I just need some time. And I, I do this to Pastor Dave a lot, too. But this particular time, I called Tommy, and I, I need you. We get together. He, he actually was available pretty quickly. Sometimes he's not, so don't worry. But uh, he was available pretty quickly. And um, we got together. And I said, I just need to, I need to sit with you. I need to tell you about this trial. I, I need to give you the details, probably too many, and what I really need you to do is what I know you will do. You'll love me. You'll listen to me. You'll probably take my side, and you'll, you know, that'll be great, but at the end, what I really need you to do is I need you to lovingly step back and hit me as hard as you can with the truth. I just can't see. I'm hurting. I can't see straight. So I did just that. I unloaded it. I gave it all the details. And at some point, he was taking my side like I knew he would, and he's even more animated than me, and he's frustrated, I think, at, at least it seemed. And, and, um, and I said, okay, that's all. And I said, but I know in the fight, sometimes, sometimes we're, we get punched in the nose. You know that feeling. Maybe, maybe you don't, but if you do, it's just a jilting moment where you can't think straight. And maybe you know what to do, but you need somebody in your corner reminding you of what, what to do. And so I say to him, okay, I've listened to your sermon. Uh, I've been so encouraged by it, but I'm still struggling. I'm just hurting in this particular situation. And, and I said, um, I want to respond like David. I, I, I want so badly to be so aware of God's providence that when a man's throwing rocks at me and my armed guards want to kill that man, I say, no, no, if God put it in his heart to throw the rocks at me, then let him throw the rocks. I, I say that to him, and I say, so... So I want, I want to do what's right, so I'm ready. Go ahead, I can take it. And he just smiles and so kindly hit me as hard as you possibly can. He said, you're not upset with this person. You're angry at God. I don't know if you saw it, but I felt water squirt out of my face, probably got on your food. And it felt like a an elephant was sitting on my chest. And, and the reality is because I wasn't seeing it that way. I, I couldn't live for a minute knowing that I'm angry at God. I can't, I can't do that. But you were right. Because if God's sovereign over my situation and it's happened the way that it is, it's not by accident. He's allowed it. 
in that moment, I, I was hurting. I couldn't see clearly. It was so helpful to have you remind me. And this is such a gift. We all need this. Not one of us is separate from that. We all need it. And we have it here. And it's not just, um, it's not just me and Tommy and Josh and Pastor. There's a lot of people. This room is full of people that can do exactly the same thing. We'll get to that. In the most recent new members class, I warned of some traps to be aware of with respect to this particular gift, though. And I want to share this because I think, it's, I think it'll be helpful. Uh, a trap is you might rightly discern if you were to watch my life or Tommy's or Pastor's or um, Josh's, you might rightly discern that we're extremely busy people. That's fair. I have five kids. That says enough. Um, but you'd wrongly discern that we're too busy for you. It's a great joy to serve here. And so when you get that call in the middle of the night or early in the morning or at work, it's never like, oh, I got to do that. It's always, this is what the Lord has given me to do. I love it. It's a joy. And so don't fall into that trap. In this trap, I think a danger we can kind of fall into or some different ways of thinking on it is, well, I don't want to be a bother. I can probably figure this out on my own. Or we in our pride, maybe we don't want to share that we're struggling. We don't want people to think lowly of us. I got it all together. Well, just imagine this. You have a trillion dollars in your bank. It's there. You got a card. You got probably cash in your pocket. And you're starving to death. That doesn't make any sense. Don't do that. We're rich. We are rich. Don't fall into that trap. I know I can speak for the elders. I know I can speak for the deacons too and tell you that we have a great desire to be workers together with you for your joy. Think of it like a body. Have you ever injured some part of your leg, maybe cut it? And what happens? You just forget about it. You're like, oh, well, hope that works out for your leg. No, that's not what happens. Every part of your body works together to go and bring aid, to heal that wound, to make it right. Isn't that right? It's our instinct. That's the way that it should be. We're united. Christ is the head, and we're members of one another. If part of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. Okay. Well, let's read together. We'll move on. Let's read together Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So now we see our third perfecting gift. We've seen trials. We've seen godly leaders, and now we see the body of Christ. Maybe that's not there. Okay. Um, this passage that we've just read is really beautiful. It speaks to our interconnectedness. It's a true gi- a gift for growth into the image of Christ. He, the head, dwells in each of us, and we, having one spirit, as we are being moved by the Spirit, are supplying what each other need. Wow. Maybe I could just read that one more time. He, the head, indwells each of us, and we, having one Spirit, 
as we're being moved by the Spirit, are supplying what each other need. This is beautiful. So because we have the gift of godly leaders that teach us the word and we're growing, we can walk by the power of the Spirit and function in the power and the fruit of the Spirit. And as such, we become a proper working part of the body. Well, I think on this, the spirit in us will cause growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I love this clarifying note from MacArthur. I've not heard this one before. I just found it, and it's so beautiful. It's in the commentary uh, on the book of Galatians. I know we have this. It says, the Holy Spirit is not the goal of the Christian life, but it is the source. He's not the product of faithful living, but it is the power behind it. A higher level of living does not bring the Holy Spirit, but rather submission to the Holy Spirit who already indwells the believer includes a higher level of living. It's beautiful. Very quickly, I can't, um, I just can't pass by. Let's quickly look at the concept of walking by the Spirit or submitting to the Spirit. Um, As we've just read, Ephesians 5.18, I'm sure you're familiar with the passage. It says, and do not get drunk with wine. I did these out of order. I'm so sorry. Uh, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then what follows after that are the consequences of being filled with the Spirit in our relationships, husbands, wives, children, parents, uh, slaves, masters. We see that. Interestingly enough, be filled with the Spirit. In a parallel passage, you could understand the same exact meaning in the words of Colossians 3.16 that says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then we see a list of consequences of having the word richly dwelling in us, surrendering to it. We see mutual submission, husbands, wives, children, parents, same thing. So it's easy to understand that to be filled with the Spirit is the same as being filled with His Word and surrendering to it moment by moment, thought by thought, step by step. Now, anyone in our home fellowship group will be very happy that I've written this down, but another way to say the same thing is sustain conscious communion. Where are you? Yeah, I got it. Sustain conscious communion or abiding in Christ. Think about this, moment by moment, thought by thought, surrender to his word. This will lead us to being a a proper functioning member of the body. What it says, what we read, every joint supply and growth, building up of itself in love. Love's a fruit of the spirit, right? So unless we're walking by the spirit, we will not be helpful to each other. So if you, maybe you wanna serve in the church, maybe you already are, but if you're not, if this isn't your primary focus, stop what you're doing refocus, this is the most important work that we can do. We will benefit greatly. The body will benefit greatly. And what will happen is the fruit of the Spirit will naturally be on the tree of our life, the vine of our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. If you don't know how to serve here, then maybe this is why. 
as we walk by the Spirit, we'll be united, intent with one purpose, glorifying Christ. First here in the body, and the world will know us by our love for one another, and then we will be encouraging one another as we go out into the world to take the gospel, the good works that we've been prepared beforehand, that we'll take it out, and we'll be here encouraging each other, strengthening each other in that time. Like I said, this is the most important work we can do as a Christian because when we walk by the Spirit, then we will say, do, and be all that He wants us to say, do, and be. Galatians 5 tells us um, that if we walk by the Spirit, what? We'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. And it goes on to say we'll be in a very good position because right after Galatians 5 is Galatians 6, and Galatians 6 in 1 says this. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And then in verse 10, I love this, it says, so then while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially those who are the household of faith. So let's think about it. This is beautiful. It's saying exactly what it's saying. We, we're gonna build each other up. When we're moving in the spirit, one spirit, we're gonna care for one another. And if one of us were to fall off into a place of sin, of course, that's what binds us together is we've been freed from sin, so if we fall into it, which we all do from time to time, and we're caring for one another, then we're, we're going to go and in a spirit of gentleness. This is key. Matthew 18, Ephesians 6. These are beautiful markers for us as Christians. These are things that we should be doing with regularity. We should be looking out for each other. We want to we make sure our brothers are okay. We're caring for each other. What is it, Philippians, Philippians 2? Don't we love this passage? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, with, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this mindset, which also exists in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself even to the point of death on the cross. We need to consider each other as more important than ourselves. If we see each other in sin, it's not irregular or weird to come and talk to each other. If, if the back of my jacket's on fire, I hope that you will do something about it. Throw some water, slap me down on the floor, stop, drop, and roll me, you know, something. Let's, let's be serious about this. What a gift we have, brothers and sisters, who care for our growth in Christ-likeness. This is a motivation. This is something the Lord has given us. And I think this is another trap we need to be aware of. And this is heartbreaking to me. I know people that have left this church, this wonderful place that I love so much, and you can almost picture me, no, it's, I don't want to be dramatic, but the idea of uh, holding onto the bumper across the gravel parking lot saying, don't go. You know, um, but people leave over this. But this is a trap to be aware of. It should never be a surprise if a godly leader or a brother who's walking by the Spirit is coming to us to help us see our sin and in a spirit of gentleness is trying to restore us. We should never be surprised by that. We should always be thankful for that. If not, something's terribly wrong. Let's see, Pamela, do you have the cane out on me already? Am I good? I can keep going. Um, we have a little bit of time left. I think it's in your uh, bulletin. There's just this tiny little piece that I'd love to share with you. I've read it before. You probably are annoyed by it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's my inheritance in the saints, in the gospel primer. You know, I love this book. 
But I love this little message here. It's kind of in a section of the book that's called Reasons to Rehearse the Gospel. We should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But this one speaks to the point here, and I just want to read it with you. So if you have it, read along. The gospel is not just a message of reconciliation with God, but it also heralds the reconciliation of all believers to one another in Christ. Through the death of Christ, God has brought peace where there was once hostility, and he's broken down the racial, economic, and social barriers that once divided us outside of Christ. Also, when he saved us, he made us members of his household, and he gave us as gifts to one another. Each brother and sister is a portion of my gospel inheritance from God, and I am a portion of their inheritance as well. We are significant players in each other's gospel narrative, and it's in relationship with one another that we experience the fullness of God in Christ. Hence, the more I comprehend the full scope of the gospel, the more I value the church for which Christ died, the more I value the role that I play in the lives of my fellow Christians, and the more I appreciate the role they must be allowed to play in mine. So, he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ. And we've looked at perfecting gifts, three of them, trials, Godly leaders and the body of Christ. Let's let's pray. Oh, great God, you're so wonderful. Thank you that you're here with us. Thank you for these truths. Thank you that you promised to complete the good work that you've begun. And, And Lord, that these ways that you've given, these gifts that you've given, The trials that we've been in, we thank you for them. The trials that we are in now, we thank you for them. Your word says to consider it joy. But the reason that we can is because you're in it. Not one ounce, as our pastor would say, not one ounce of the trial will be wasted. You cause all things to work together for you. It's easy to meet you at your word, Lord, where you say be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication, present our request to you, knowing that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that, that you care for us, and you say, cast our cares upon you, oh Lord. Your word says to trust you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, even in the midst of trials, that we should acknowledge you and that you, Lord, will make our path straight. Oh, thank you, God. We love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for these truths. And we ask that you would strengthen us with them, that you would get all the glory. For certainly we know that we're at war. We've been living in peacetime mentality, Lord, but we're at war and we see the front coming at us. And so I pray that we would value this church that you've given, the gifts that you've given us. We know that your word says, Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live, we live in the flesh. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave, us, gave himself up for us. So as we interact with each other, each one of us, we're interacting with you in us, Lord. So we thank you for that. Thank you for letting us abide in you. Thank you for your spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee.
For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.